Hi, my name is Mick Ebling, and I have beat the often pass by committing and then figuring it out. Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer. On this show, we showcase unusual success stories to help us see the bigger picture in our lives and careers and help us prove that you can make money without being a jerk and that you can be good to other people and still build a life of meaning and of wealth for yourself. Today, my guest is Mick Ebeling, a man who has been named one of Fortune's 50 greatest leaders, and his organization is the only one ever honored twice by Time Magazine for Top Invention of the Year. Mick's incubator is called Not Impossible, and through it, he tackles enormous problems that affect us all, like food insecurity. Did you know that 50 million people are food insecure in the United States and counting, and through Mick's work, he's been able to distribute hundreds of thousands of meals with his innovative technology-based solutions. We'll learn how Mick transformed his career from film and film production into making a meaningful impact around the world. So here, folks, is Mick Ebeling, founder and CEO of Not Impossible Labs and Bento. Committing and then figuring it out, a lesson that we've heard multiple times from successful entrepreneurs. So what does that mean in your book? I mean, for us at Not Impossible, most of the things that we tackle are humanitarian issues, social issues, issues that deal with access that people have to mobility or communication. Um, one thing is common that typically whenever we embark on solving these things that we call absurdities, we don't have a clue what we're doing. And we certainly aren't um, entitled with degrees or diplomas or credentials to be able to pull them off. But we see these things and we just say, that's not right. The world shouldn't work that way. And then brah, we jump on it and we say, we, it's about why this has to happen, not the how. And then so we just, we just start our process and we just keep drilling and going and going and bringing in brilliant people and collaborating and getting to a point where we can finally create a solution to that absurdity and then getting that out to help as many people as possible. Well, I love it. That's exactly why you're here, because that is basically the premise and message of this show to begin with. It's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to find a way to escape cynicism, which comes all too easy, especially these days. Uh, if you read things about pretty much anything to do with society at large or the environment or Earth, it's all doom and gloom. Almost every article in certain news sites that I read is we're screwed over here. We're screwed over there. It's too late for this. It's too late for that. The problems are out of control. So you might say that a lot of the issues that we're facing seem impossible, don't they? How do we overcome those things? How do we not be cynical our whole lives? Look, uh, part of what we do at Not Impossible is we're obsessed and infatuated by this concept of impossible. We've been studying it for 10 years now, uh, over a decade. And the one thing that always comes back is the fact that if you look and this is based on, a, it's funny that we a decade of research and study and obsession kind of distills down to this one point. If you look at everything, everything that surrounds us, right? From the obvious, which is the fact that, you know, you and I are talking over these crazy fiberglass lines that allow us to communicate in near real time. That's kind of the obvious, you know, what's funny is that's obvious, but for most people, they don't even think about it anymore. That's just accepted, right? Or it's just content. How we trap. Yeah, exactly. How we travel in the air and cars or, but, but go back even further, go back to maybe how we slept last night. 
we didn't sleep on the ground. We slept on a bed. When we woke up today, we didn't, you know, just go down to the river and grab, cup our hands and get some water to put in. We opened up the fridge and grabbed some juice. Every single thing that surrounds us today that's possible at one point was impossible. Everything, every single thing. So for us, when you reflect on that, we say, all right, well, if everything that's possible today was impossible first, and this has been the way that our species, our entire, you know, our entire world has existed. And it, it, that must be also the indication of how the wor world will continue to unfold, which means that everything that is impossible today is on that same trajectory of going from impossible to possible. The question is, when will it happen? Is it gonna happen this week, this month, this year? Is it gonna be in our lifetime, our kids' lifetime, future generations? That's kind of not the point. The point is it will eventually go from impossible to possible. So while we're here, this little amount of time that we're here on this planet, it's our job to do everything we can to make that transition. So when you open up your news feed and all you see is just crappy news about war and shootings and this and that and the other, for us, we take a step back and we say, okay, it is our job to do everything we can to make this world better, but it is also our job to, to reflect on the fact that we are here for just a moment and everything that we see in the world that's going you know, crazy, that too shall pass because that has passed for generations. The bad stuff has passed and we have to stay on this path of doing whatever we can to transition things from impossible to possible, to transition things to be being from worse to better for, for other people on the planet. And so it sounds a little maybe ooga booga, like esoteric, but it's actually really simple. It's really, really simple. And it's also incredibly narcissistic for us to think that we, this generation or us or me or you have reached this point where we have discovered that one thing that shall remain impossible forever, right? That means we're the first person in the history of our species. That's a little narcissistic. So that's kind know. of I have a whiteboard over here. Sorry. I have a whiteboard over here where I've disproven everything. I'm pretty sure that I am the first person to do that. Just full disclosure. <laughs> Uh, I can show it to you, but it's off camera right now, so uh, I'm not well, going to put afterwards. it on the screen. Afterwards. But just you have to take my word for it that I, I have think, found yeah. those things. Um, but along those lines, you call yourself an impatient optimist, which perfectly sums it up. I'm not nearly cool enough to put that on my LinkedIn profile, but I believe it in your case. I like the idea of that because optimism says we can solve these problems, but impatience says I'm not going to wait forever to do it. We do have a finite amount of time. So, yeah, what does it mean in your mind to be an impatient Optimist. The last two years, we have learned kind of like Marvel's Avengers Endgame, right? That people, they just disappear on the planet based on this, this pandemic that, that has obsessed our minds and, and our globe for the last two years. If there's one thing that that's done is it's proven the fact that it's reinforced the fact that life is finite, right? It's for a brief moment of time we're here and then we're gone. So for us, we kind of see it as, all right, well, if we're only here for a minute, we're going to do everything we can to one, have fun, to try to enjoy life, to try to make the world better for other people. And back to that point we just talked about, the role that we can play here 
in terms of how it's going to affect the planet, the planet's going to be just fine. The planet's going to be just fine. If we keep on the path that we're on with, with a lot of the fa- things around global warming and things like that, we're, we're the ones that are going to have a hard time. The, the planet's going to be just fine. The Earth will swallow us back up. We'll wait a couple thousand million years and it'll spit something back out again and it'll, it'll keep going on. So for us, it kind of, with that, like, obviously being a bit, uh grandiose in, in, in describing that but so then we think all right for this brief moment of time what can we do to to enjoy this world and to just make it a little bit better for other people it's about that that human interaction for other people so our optimism i think and this is a kind of a play on words here it's more of a semantical conversation how good do you feel when you do something good for someone else? How good do you feel when you actually are making someone else's life a little bit better? Pretty good. Great. So why don't you act in your own enlightened self-interest? Go ahead and just keep feeling good. Keep feeling good, making other people's lives better, making other people's worlds a little bit nicer, a little bit easier. That's, that's where that optimism goes for us. At least that's how we manifest it. Yep, completely agree. And obviously, you must be familiar with George Carlin's famous bit that had a similar punchline. The earth is fine. We're fucked. To totally, his language. totally. And, and uh, that is obviously the bad. case. Sorry. Also semantics. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's a. Uh, I don't know. My wife and I have this saying called Dotty Sophus, which is don't take yourself so effing serious. Yeah. And I think that, well, that doesn't give you a license to be irresponsible and to, you know, to kind of do whatever you want, whenever you want, to whomever you want. I think it gives you the license to be like, okay, why don't we just try to, why don't we just work on today, this week, this month, and think about how we can make the world better for those pe- for the people that surround us, our family, our loved ones, and also the strangers that are going through hard times. Completely agree. And I think the difference between our generation and, say, George Carlin's generation is that a lot of this a few decades ago was still kind of theoretical. He said, we're the ones who are screwed. And now we're kind of seeing how we're screwed. We're seeing, yeah, the planet is fine, but there's kind of a lot of plastic that's building up in the oceans. In fact, a ton of it. And it's also washing up on our beaches and it's affecting our life. And we've got droughts and mega droughts and we've got people who are starving and all of these things. So it's affecting us. Today is a beautiful day. You and I are both in one of the most beautiful climates in the world. I'm in Glendale. You're in L.A. So we're doing fine. It's not chaos yet, but we're seeing the signs of some things. Yeah, it's not all perfect. And so the question is, what can we what can we do to make it better along the lines of what you said? And I love that you chose food insecurity. That's been a primary focus of yours and uh, the project called Bento Fixing with SMS messaging how did you land of all the problems in the world to solve on food uh so at not impossible we tackle absurdities we tackle different things that we see and we become obsessed on and then we drill down and figure out how we can prototype a solution and then try to scale it to as many people as possible perfect okay so throughout the course of our existence we'll see things and we'll go rot and we'll jump on them we'll try to figure them out and try to get that to help people so we've done that for ocular recognition technology, we've done it for 3D printed prosthetics. We've we've explored ways for vaccine distribution to the developing world. We've looked at ways to abate Parkinson's. We've done all kinds of different things. We and those things happen randomly to us, right? All of a sudden, something pops up, and it's just like, wait a second. It's like having a rock in your shoe. Like, wait, what is that? It just keeps bugging me. And so, this concept of food insecurity 
I never heard that word food insecurity. I've heard of hunger. We all have heard the word hunger, but food insecurity was a word I wasn't familiar with because as you just said, we're blessed. We don't, I don't, I don't know how you grew up, but uh, I never- I had food growing up. What? I had food. Yeah, <laughs> I grew you had up in the middle food. class. Yeah, you didn't have to, you, you were never worried of whether or not you're gonna eat. Maybe if you got sent never. to bed for getting in trouble, you couldn't eat dinner, but there was never a concern that your cupboards were gonna be bare. So. The definition of food insecurity, as I learned, is the fact that of 21 meals a week, maybe you've got 15 of them, 14 of them. So you've got enough to stay alive, but not enough to thrive as a human, not enough to be healthy, not enough to also constantly be stressed about where your next meal is coming from. Everyone, I don't know if you've ever, of course you have, but been hangry, right? Where oh, you're yeah. just a nasty human being because right. you because you haven't eaten for whatever four five six hours right imagine living like that imagine if that was your existence it's a whole different it's a whole different way of thinking you can't think about very pragmatic what you and i would consider to be very simple things like i'm gonna go get a job so i can make some money or uh i need to go do this i need to find a place to live i need to get some clothes all you're focused around is that one thing which by the way is the absolute basic bottom bottom tier of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So we said, all right, this is the more we learned about it. We're like, there's 50 million people in this country, in the US who are food insecure. There's like one in five, one, one in five kids are food insecure. The number of veterans, it was just like all these statistics. And we, we were like, wow, hang on a second, we gotta do something. So we went down as I'm pointing that way to a group down the street from us in Venice Beach called Safe Place for Youth. And we interviewed these kids who were homeless and also, by the way, just so we're clear, there's about 650,000 people in this country who are homeless. There's 50 million people who are food insecure. And the people who are food insecure are the people who probably served you, you know, at one of the local restaurants that you might have dined at, or they might have driven you, you know, in a car, in an Uber, something like that. This is the, this is the invisible, massive population that we can't really see. It's not the people who are camping in tents, although they are food insecure. It's not those people. It's that's the obvious side. So we said, all right, we started to interview people. And do you know what the one thing that came back when we, in all of our research, the one thing that they wanted most? Ready? Mm -hmm. Drum roll, please. All right. Cell phone. They wanted a cell phone. And we were like, wait a second. If you are hungry, if you're homeless, why would a cell phone be the thing that you want? And the reason is, is that that was that connective tissue to their community, to their family, to their friends. And it gave them an ability to, to kind of to exist in this world that is, you know, almost ubiquitously connected through technology. So we said, all right, that's interesting. So we looked at the statistics. And 97% of the people in this country have a cell phone, whether you sleep on the street or sleep in a mansion in Beverly Hills. So we said, what if we were to use that? And part of what Non Impossible, we, we're all about design thinking, is we always talk about this concept of frictionless innovation. How do you cause the least amount, or how do, you, how do you provoke the least amount of behavior change, but cause the, the most amount of, of difference, right? Most amount sure. of impact with the least amount of behavior change. And so, we said, well, what if we went through a cell phone, but we didn't go through things that required big data plans? What if we did it through text? Because text was ubiquitous. So punchline is that's what we did. We created this network that uh, we went to large scale organizations, healthcare companies, the VA, 
um, massive CBOs, Boys and Girls Club, YMCA's, they already knew the people who were food insecure. We gave them uh, which was called Hunger Not Impossible. It's now called Bento. We gave them this application. They poured the phone numbers into the application. And then everybody who was enrolled was able to text the word order. Then it would instantly, so it wasn't mean things that were pushed to them. They would pull it when it was convenient for them. They would text the word order. Then it would pop up restaurants that were geo-proximate to them. They would choose the restaurant that they wanted, which typically, if you're food insecure, you have to go wait in line someplace and hope that you get some food that you want to eat. Now they get to choose a restaurant. Then the next prompt is they get to choose a menu item from that restaurant. So now they've got, they don't get to choose Chipotle or, or, or Pratt or a local cafe or something like that. Now they get to choose the menu item and then they choose it and then they get to go in and pick it up. And here's the key thing. When they go in and pick it up, they walk in and they they. They, they're usually the first time they, they're a little bit, there's a little bit of intrepidation. They walk in and say, hi, my name is Mick. And they say, oh, yep, here you go, Mick. Here's your food. And you grab the food and you walk out. So the person's not identified as food insecure. They're not identified as someone who can't afford to feed their family. They're just Mick. So they get to walk in and walk out with their dignity and with a meal. And so that, that was really the concept of it. And man, I got to tell you, we were scared at first because we're like, all right, this is a crazy idea. Let's see if it'll work. Things thing went bonkers. And the thing that we loved the most was all the feedback we were getting from people who were like, thank you so much for the meal, but thank you so much for just the dignity. You know, and they would say it in different ways, but the dignity of just being able to go in and get food just like anybody else. That gave me goosebumps. Seriously. I love that. Thanks. So beautiful. And at the time I did my research, something like 200,000 meals distributed this way. I'm sure it's more now. Is that accurate? Where are we standing right it now? It is. It is. We're on a... We're on a good clip right now. That was about at the 18-month point. Um, okay. And we also, I will, this is kind of because I'm really proud of what we've accomplished. It's kind of like if you ask me if my kids are cute, of course, I'm going to, oh, really? Let me show you all the pictures. Let me open my phone. <laughs> uh, we got, last year, we were named as a fast company, world-changing idea. Uh, Fortune uh, nominated us as a Fortune Impact 20 company. And then yep. we received our second and now we are the only not impossible as a as an incubator uh, is the only company to have ever received it twice. But we got our second Time Magazine top invention of the year. So and that was all for Bento, which was really exciting. And weren't you personally also named by Fortune one of the world's uh, top 50 greatest leaders? And you were also unique in that. I think the accolades that was, are just no, no, that was the that was the other bald Mick from Venice Beach. That wasn't that wasn't me. Oh, the other one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I know that guy. That guy, don't, that guy don't trust me. that guy. That guy's bad news. He's he bad. still owes me five bucks. Yo, yeah, you're never going to get it. <laughs> never. Never. But the accolades are clearly insane. So let's rewind because obviously what you have done is really cool. And let's stop and go back. So your origins were in filmmaking. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I, how did I, you end up getting from there to here? Uh, on accident, like probably like a lot of things, probably like you got mm. from wherever you, you, what you were doing to, to hosting your podcast. It was just something that one thing led to another. And our one thing that led to another is that we had a, my wife and I had a date night that was hijacked by a good friend of mine. And he ended up introducing us to this artist named, uh, this artist named Tony Temp who is right here on our wall. 
Look at that. Look at that. I'm going to go. I mean, this is like, Whoa. this is like cutting to a screenshot, except for it's a literal screenshot. Oh, look at that. Whoa. No reflection. That was really good. So uh, we met Super him. Cool. And he was a uh, paralyzed graffiti artist who didn't have any way to communicate with his family. And so we ended up, this is the hyper condensed version. We ended up making this thing called the eye rider, which is a cheap pair of sunglasses uh, and some coat hangers, some duct tape. Right here. It's some eye rider. So it's cheap sunglasses that we knock the lenses out. It's a coat hanger that we duct taped along the side. Then we zip tied or, or taped a web camera to the front here so that someone could put it on like this. We wrote some code and then this little camera would track the pupil and that would move a cursor on the screen and allow him to, uh, to draw again using only his eyes. So that was a hyper condensed version of it. But the whole point is we didn't know what we were doing. We just met this guy and one thing led to another and we ended up creating this thing and lo and behold, it worked. He drew again and then we all went home and then we woke up and this thing went bonkers, right? It was our first time magazine top invention. People started talking about it all over the world and we realized, all right, well, maybe started to cause us to contemplate. Maybe this is something we should do. Maybe using technology to help people is something that we should do. And my animation production company was going bonkers. It was great. We were, we were crushing it at the time. But you know when you wake up every day and you've just got that feeling that you just, you know, I, this happens to me all the time. I got that feeling that I forgot to do something. Imagine I have that feeling where you're like, wow, this is something I have to do. And so that eventually led to, to the creation of Not Impossible Labs. So you're motivated. I love that. Do you think that in some weird way, obviously making film, they're huge undertakings that require a lot of staff, big project management skills. Do you think that the skills that you learned translated directly to being able to build other things? A hundred percent. The job of a producer is to convene brilliant people who know more about fill in the blank than you do, but you bring them together and then you help to mobilize schedule and budget and, and deadlines so that you actually get to a final and, and goal. And that's what a producer does. And that's really what I did when I started on Impossible Labs and, and what I do now. Amazing. I love how one thing transfers over to something else. That's a, a, a theme that I've noticed. And a lot of people, when they're stuck, they're focused on what they're doing right now. And they don't necessarily see what that next thing will be. And a lot of times they feel like they're on the wrong track. But in yeah. your case and many other successful people's case, it seems like it's not on the wrong track. It's just a part of the same journey if they let it be. How do you feel yeah. about that? Yeah. Do, do you know, have you ever heard the saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans? Yes. So for me, I feel like we are as humans, we're just this, this mix up of all of our life experiences and things that we've done. And we have the ability to extract the positives, recognize the negatives so you don't you know, go down that path again. And I just think that's the kind of the beautiful thing. It also doesn't mean that you can pull a total 180, right? There's nothing that says that your past defines your future. You can absolutely change up your pathway if you want. Um, I just, I don't know, man. I'm in love with the human condition and just kind of this human process. Some days are really dark. Some days are really bright. Major majority of the days are just like, you know, we're all just trying to figure it all out. And when you realize that everyone else is scared of the same shit that you're scared of and have this has the same fears, the same concerns, the same desires, the same, you know, then all of a sudden you realize that we're really not that different.
Yeah, completely agree. Would you say that the good days outweigh the bad days more now that you've found a mission that you can really sink your teeth into versus what you were doing before? Yeah. Um, you know, I think everyone's struggle is relative, you know? Uh, and I think that I learned a lot about myself during the pandemic um, that, you know, depression is something that has affected my family's life. And I thought that I was, I was immune to that. And I realized that, you know, if I, if I took a step back and I was thinking about how I was thinking, I was like, Oh, that's interesting. I didn't like, no one would have ever, I would have never, and no one on the outside would have ever suspected that those were some of the thoughts that were going through my head. So I think one of the things that, that I learned over the last two years is uh, compassion. Right. And there's a, I grew up in a fairly religious household. You would never know with my truck driver mouth, but um, there's a, a Bible verse that is judge lest you be judged, right? Mm. Which is, you know, until you walk, um, you know, what is it? Walk a hundred miles in someone else's moccasins or someone else's shoes and you shouldn't judge them. And that's what I think I, I really learned over this last little bit. Yeah. And how do you feel now? about these abstract problems, less abstract in places like LA where the homeless population is so large and so ever present. How do you feel interacting with some of these communities now versus how you felt before when you maybe had limited interaction? Uh, it's kind of what I, what I mentioned a couple minutes ago, everyone's just trying to figure out their life. Right. Yeah. And in the absence of like extreme mental illness, in which case it kind of puts you spinning at a different level and that has its own set of variables and, and obstacles, we're all just trying to figure stuff out. And I've learned a lot. We've had the blessing of working with the community that I think would typically be called and conventionally be called a disabled community. People who are blind, people who are deaf, people who are in wheelchairs, people who have particular man, they, they just don't have the same abilities, but they are far from disabled. And that has been such a lesson in humility for me. And, and, and just kind of a, a little bit of a shaking on the shoulders of don't just be careful with how you quantify and see the world in black and white and confined lines. Cause it's never, it's never that clear. And I think one of the things that I've learned from this community and some of my, like one of my closest friends is a, he's a, he's a blind mountain climber. This guy could kick my ass up and down. The only thing I'm going to like beat him in is anything that requires eyesight, right? Okay. That's one of thousands of things that could go on. And, and, for me, it's I really love hanging out with them because it forces you to see the world in a different light through. And notice I word I didn't say the word see intentionally, but I realized the pun sure. there. Uh, yeah. It you have to you have to experience the world in a different way. Yeah, that's such a good uh, a good point. So it's really opened your eyes. Yeah, I love that. And. If people have ideas, they have a general desire to do something good, somebody out there. I think a lot of people have a general desire to contribute, but they don't know how. How would you say that somebody should think about it if they're trying to do good, but they're not getting that overnight, oh, I made this and suddenly I'm on Time Magazine? Yeah. What if they're not seeing the change or the impact that they would like, or it's not going as fast? What if they are an impatient optimist, but the patience is wearing thin? What's your advice? 
So one, we have a couple mantras that hang up around the our hallowed halls of 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 non impossible. One of them is commit and figure it out. Uh, the other one is help one, help many. And what that means for us is we can sit and talk about all of the problems in the world and talk about these massive issues and 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 just how many people are affected by them. Do you know what we can do? We can go out and help one person. That's what we can do. And inevitably helping that one person or doing something for that one person, trying to make that other person's life better just a little bit, inevitably reveals something to us of, oh, that didn't work. Or, oh, that did work. Or, oh, wow, that could really work. And then it gives us the ammunition. It gives us the the, the ability and the vantage point to see like, oh, how could I expand that? Or how could I stop? But the point is, you at least have attempted that journey. A scale of one to 10, how fulfilled do you think that you are on a daily basis? 10 is best life I can possibly imagine. One is, ugh, I hate everything. Uh, I think there's two answers to that question. Sorry to take a simple binary question and make it on two levels. I think that I am incredibly blessed to have the life that I have. And I suffer from, and I say suffer from always wanting to do more and experience more and, and be more. So uh, I would say the average is probably, um, I'm, I'm an 11, you know, I'm a spinal tap 11 when it nice. comes to kind of the blessing of my life. And I'm probably at a seven in terms of how I feel like I'm doing everything that I can. Because you feel like there's always something more that you could be doing that's never enough? Yeah, it's not so much that it's never enough because that is a pretty dark place to be. It's the fact that there is there's always something that I could I could there's more that I could do, right? Mm. And uh that is sometimes a frustrating place to live, especially for the loved ones around you, but it's I'm also very clear with that's who I am. And um, you know, that's that's it. That that that's Mick. Yep. That sounds good. Is there something that you believe that goes against conventional wisdom or something unusual that you believe that not a lot of other people might believe? Uh, goes against conventional wisdom. Uh, yeah, I think it's really not that hard. It doesn't, doesn't have to be that hard. <laughs> I know it's big and broad in general, but I think that uh, we spend a good majority of our lives just figuring out how to overcomplicate things. And it's just not that hard. It's not that complicated. Um, so if we back to that whole commit and figure it out thing, you're, we're going to get so much further if we just go for it and jump than if we spend so much time trying to figure stuff out and make sure that it's the perfect move, the perfect step. So I know that was probably more of an esoteric kind of vague answer, but I think that that can be applied to almost everything. We're, we're playing a lot in the healthcare space right now. And oh ask. my goodness gracious, that they could overcomplicate a free lunch, right? It's just, so I think that's something that I'm very, very present with right now about the fact it doesn't have to be this hard. No, that's that's so true. And I think we've put a lot of mechanisms in place that do overcomplicate it. One of the last people I talked to is the founder of ampleharvest.org, and they're an organization that connects extra food. Let's say you have food in your garden. Yeah, Most people just throw it away or they can't even donate it, but how do we connect that with food shelters and people who are giving away food? And I asked him a question of, how do we know if food is good or not or safe? And he says, you got two very great state-of-the-art ways to know. 
your nose and your mouth. Yeah. <laughs> if it doesn't taste good and it doesn't smell good, it's not good. But sometimes we do overcomplicate it. We say, oh, the food has been unrefrigerated for one minute. Got to throw it all out. There's exactly. another thousand pounds of food in the trash. Yeah. Why? Why do we have think, to do that? I think that the absurdities around that are just, they're comical. It, it's almost like you're watching your watch. Oh, it's the, bad. The, it, it's bad. It's officially gone to bad. That yogurt <laughs> or that sausage or that cheese that you know, past generations used to store in a basement. That's bad now because it's been a, it's been a, you know, one day past and it's been in a refrigerated uh, environment. So. And yeah, the amount of food that must go to waste, how maddening is that? Because the statistic is 40% of all food, 50% of produce in this country just goes to waste. And here's, here's the thing that we operate back to that whole frictionless philosophy of not impossible. I think that if you just talk about the absurdity of waste, then you're going to go down paths that are frustrating. It's going to be very hard to solve. It's going to be, there's a lot of reasons. Why? Because there has to be some reason why someone has to change that behavior or change that way of existence, right? And so what we look to, a lot of what we look to at Not Impossible is about what we call enlightened self-interest or even more kind of defined as lightened capitalism, right? Because what you just said is ridiculous. We, all this food goes to waste and it shouldn't go to waste, all things like that. What is the business interest for the, the private sector, for them not in out of benevolence to donate it or to make sure that there's a, a thing because it's the right thing to do. And by the way, we should operate as humans that way. But if we can capitalize on the thing that actually may incentivizes that business or that company or that person to do it, and we get a chance to feed people with food that was about to go for waste, that's the point to search for. Because now you've created motivations of why people want to do it beyond just be a good person. Being a good person is easy to walk away from and you don't think twice about it doing something that can actually benefit you, your job, your company, now you're actually incentivized to do something. So we're always looking at it from those angles. And we always joke that our, our sinister ulterior motive is to feed people or to give people more access to mobility or freedom of expression or da, 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 da. But if you can create ways where other pockets of people or companies are actually benefiting either fiscally or however, uh, then from a communication standpoint, from a PR standpoint, now all of a sudden you've created more reasons for them to do that. Yeah. Well, enlightened capitalism could have been a better title for the show. It certainly rolls off the tongue a bit better, but I completely agree. <laughs> We've got to work within these mechanisms. We have to incentivize yeah. people. And for all too long, there have been this divergent path between capitalism pumping out plastic and trash and garbage and hippies not making money and now we're at a point where we say, okay, what can we do to merge those two ideas? How can we have people enrich themselves, but also solving problems and not be incentivized to pollute, to ruin things, to harm our yep. society? So I, I agree with your entire premise. I know yep. we are very short on time. It has been a chaotic uh, a day, but I'm glad I got in a few words with you. I really appreciate you taking the time to share. Um, I did want to leave the floor to you so you can have a final word here. Anything and everything that you want to promote or say, last words in general, I would give it to you. I appreciate that. Uh, no, I've really enjoyed the conversation. The um, I would say if you're interested in Not Impossible, if you want to see what we're up to, you can go to notimpossible.com. 
Um, a call to action would be honestly, just go help one person. You know, I would love if you're listening to this right now to go help one person and then to hit us up and on a possible hit us up on the podcast and just tell us that what you did, because if other people see that maybe one act of kindness that you do or did can inspire someone else to do that. And we talked earlier about kind of the, the, the feeling that you get when you flip open your, you know, your news feed and you see all the stuff that's going on in the world. Imagine what would happen if you flipped it open and all of a sudden you see that there's, you know, tens and then hundreds and then thousands of people who just did one single act of kindness. Think about how that would affect the world. So um, that would be my, that would be my ask, you know, the, the, everything that we do at Non Impossible from, from our book to our podcast to the videos we produce to the partnerships that we do with corporations to kind of teach this, it all goes back to the same thing. Like all of those things are manifestations and encouragements and invitations for you to just go do something good, small, pick one person, go do something small to make their world and the world a better place. What a great way to wrap it up. Mick Ebeling, the websites are gobento.com, G-O-B-E-N-T-O.com, and notimpossible.com, spelled the way it sounds. Again, can't thank you enough. I just want to say one last time, I think you're doing some really, really cool stuff. And by the way, your websites and your aesthetic and all of that is so good. People check it out. Your Whoever your graphic designer is, is, is killing it. I love the look and feel of all the stuff you got going on. It's beautiful. Thank you very much. I will give a shout out to the company called Verndale who helped us do that. They, they've very been an incredible nice. partner. So, but thank you for the compliment. I appreciate it. Yes. Thanks for, a, thanks for having me. And I will acknowledge pleasure. to everyone. We had ridiculous technical difficulties at the beginning of this. <laughs> so you were true. incredibly patient and I, uh, I thank you. We can 3d print prosthetics and we can make devices to help people draw with their eyes, but getting a zoom call to work that now that's a little, that's, I know, that's the frustration. <laughs> that's the frustration. It's like, why didn't it work perfectly the first time? Why couldn't it beam to space and over fiber optics? We still have to struggle. But again, thank you. And with that, I know you got to go. So the official podcast is over. Oh.